Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to talk about energy storage systems, also known as ESS, and the National Electrical Code, also known as NEC. And we're going to talk about this information with BB, that's Bill Brooks, and SW for Sean White. And by the way, be sure to get Sean and Bill's latest book, which is the third edition of PV and the NEC, which is based on the 2023 National Electrical Code. Also, disclaimer, this podcast was recorded in 2021. So, to find out where to get different versions of the National Electrical Code for money or for free, go check out SolarShawn, that's SolarSean.com. Check out the tabs, check out all the links that we have there. Tons of stuff, including where to find different versions of the National Electrical Code. Then when you find those different versions, what you can do is you can open it up to Article 706, because we are going to jump, that is like jumping with a pole vault over a big tall fence into a solar farm. That's how utility scale solar installers get to work, by the way. You have to know how to pole vault over that fence that is grounded according to Article 691 of the National Electrical Code. That's for the big PV systems over 5 megawatts AC. But right now, we are going to pole vault and jump in to Article 706. 706, and that's energy storage system. So we've determined that we should be using 706 instead of 480. There are a lot of things similar and a lot of differences that we have there. And so 706 is the also the Royal Canadian Air Cadets. And it's a movie. What do they call those India movies? They have Bollywood. Bollywood. It's a Bollywood movie. Nice. So you got to check that out. One kilowatt hour, which is in the 2020 code. And the 2017 code says systems over 60 volts DC or 50 volts AC. Obviously, your Tesla Powerwalls and Enphase systems are going to be over 50 volts AC. And I would argue that any of your systems that are out there today that are UL9540 are going to fall under 706, regardless of these lower thresholds that are in the 2017 code. Yeah, because the energy storage system would be usually almost always including an inverter. Correct. So, I mean, it's 120 volts is way over 50 volts. And 706, more strict than 480. Yes. Except you can build your own batteries that aren't UL listed. (laughs) Informational note just talks about nominal voltage. You multiply your amp hours times your volts and divide by a thousand to get your kilowatt hours. Yeah. And that's probably not what the NEC is for, but yeah. why not? Bill's favorite part My of the favorite NEC. informational so. note, this subtle distinction between battery storage energy and energy storage system, just pretend as they weren't stupid enough to put this in the code. Sorry, my own opinion there. There is a distinction between Article 480 and 706. There was never intended to be a distinction. We were supposed to get rid of 480 from the beginning. And so now what we've done is carved out why we have Article 480 is for stationary batteries that are used for things like substation batteries and the like, and telecom batteries that are sitting there generally kept at a full state of charge 24-7. And that's what lead acid is really good at. Lead acid is good at what we call standby use, only using it when you have to for backup power or in power outages and things like that. And that's how it's used in substations. And that's how it's used in telecom applications. It's not cycled every day at all. Whereas an energy storage system is a system that's generally getting cycled. So with a lithium ion battery, those are good at cycling. And with electric rates and things like that, there's some advantages to cycling them. 
actually opening up some energy storage capacity in them at night so that we can put solar power in the morning, things like that, that have some very real value. And that's not something we generally do a lot with lead acid. So that's the distinction. And that's why the 2023 code is going to say 480 is going to be just lead acid batteries that are in stationary applications for standby power and 706 is everything else. How did they even get that there on yeah. your watch? Huh? Not on my watch. Those fellows over in panel 13 were smoking something that day. Hmm. I guess they legalized marijuana in the code panel meetings. They did that after you went to bed probably or Apparently. something. Just different informational notes about all the different standards that have to do with energy storage systems. And so we're starting off with 1973. That's for the battery. And I always get confused about this when I was first learning about it because it says stationary vehicle and electric light rail. So they're talking about cars and trains also, but apparently that standard can be used for other things besides what we use them for is we're talking about the stationary batteries. And then that falls under the umbrella of 9540. So 9540 is what the residential code is talking about. And so that would be the umbrella one where a 9540 system would need to have batteries that are 1973 or this you were telling me before too that the 1989 could be for lead acid batteries but they're not doing that yet but yeah well if you get 1989 you can also get 1973 so the the way it's going 1989 let's call it a substandard it doesn't mean that it's a lesser standard but it's a standard even below 1973 so 1973 you could have something that's 1989 and then get it certified to 1973 and then get that system certified to 9540. Okay, so all these umbrellas under umbrellas. Then. Correct. So 9540s on the top, that's what we're mostly looking for. Mm-hmm. And then to have a 9540, it needs to have something like a 1973. And this is the important thing to focus on here as an AHJ. We're not looking for all these other certifications. We're looking for UL 9540 and we're looking at the installation instructions that tell us What configuration is required to have a 9540 battery system? So it's not our jobs as an inspector to verify the 1973 certification of the battery. That's not our job. Our job to say this battery must be used with this inverter in this configuration with this overcurrent protection in order to have a UL9540 system. And there's always, in my experience so far, there is always a communications path between the inverter and the battery system when these are separate components. So if we have an inverter that's separate from the battery subsystem, like we do with the LG Chem battery or the BYD battery, those are two examples of separate batteries that happen to be 1973 certified. There's always a communications cable that connects the two because the communications is a critical part of the 9540 to tell the inverter what to do and what's going on inside the lithium-ion battery in those cases. For instance, if you have a Solar Edge or a Sunny Boy Storage, they will go get their system listed to 9540 with a battery, SMA and Solar Edge. They don't make batteries, so they'll go get something like the LG Chem, which is 1973 listed, and then they'll get those together listed for 9540. And so I've heard, for instance, what's happening with Store Edge from Solar Edge is they will be able to work with the BYD battery, but they need to get it listed as 9540 as working together. And so that's probably something we'll be seeing soon in the future from what I heard. 
So there's also this thing that's kind of neat. It's the 9540A test method. And so this is not to be confused with 9540. And what they do is they try to make it blow up. So if you like making things blow up, it would be kind of fun. They deactivate the protection of the battery management system until they get a thermal event, which is another name for a fire, and then they'll see how it burns. So if you're a pyro, if you're into pyromania, that was the first concert I ever went to when I was in high school, back when the drummer had two arms. Mm. That's the 9540A test method. For a lot of these larger energy storage systems, they will be like independently tested and listed maybe in the field feeding the grid or feeding your premises. And so that to me sounds like it's going to be AC all the time, unless you had a DC house. It's possible in theory to have a DC house, but nobody has one. There's no 9540 DC listed system anyway, so you just couldn't do it right now with equipment that we have. Energy storage systems can be batteries, capacitors, different things that we're not really seeing, flywheels, inverters, and converting DC to AC and all different directions. And we also differ from the UPS, that's the uninterruptible power supply, which would be covered by Article 702. And so we're a little bit different with what we're doing. And then a flow battery, we could see these for residential, but is there anyone that's 9540 right now? Not that I'm aware of. They take up too much room. The size, the physical size of flow batteries just doesn't really make a lot of sense in a residential application, unless you had a farm or something like that, Mm -hmm. where you had a lot of room. Of course, in Hawaii, most residences don't have a lot of room to start with, and so that would be an additional difficulty. But it is a chemical battery. It's chemistry that creates the electrical, but the electrolytes are actually flowing through a reactor rather than reacting in a cell. That's really the big difference. And I think it's got a less of a round-trip efficiency, but it can last a really long time. And if you need more storage, you just get a bigger tanks. If you do look this up, you know, on the internet, you could find people that are developing these things for residential, especially in Australia. So mm-hmm. Australia has a lot of similarities between Hawaii, where it's a huge energy storage market and it's a lot more solar renewables per capita than most other places. Now, you're going to see some flow batteries in some large scale plants in Hawaii. This is not to say that, you know, larger scale systems wouldn't be using flow batteries because they will, but you're just not going to see them in residential. Yeah. Next tracker's doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inverter output circuit, just kind of like it sounds. And so this is for like a standalone or multi-mode for utilization equipment, just a definition. So pretty straightforward there. System requirements. So some of the things you need, the energy storage system shall have a nameplate. So this is going to typically already be on the unit itself. The sticker on a power wall, manufacturer's name and all these things, the frequency, the number of phases, and we need the kilowatts or the power or apparent power. So that's kilowatts is power, apparent power or volt amps, and then also the fault current that we have at the terminals. And this is kind of silly in a way because it's protected by electronics. So it's not like we're going to have these huge fault currents like you would if you just had two battery terminals sticking out of a lead acid battery. And then we're going to have our maximum output current and maximum voltage also is the capability to be interactive. It's good to understand that even like the LG Chem battery, we mentioned them several times, that is actually a 48-volt battery internally, and then it has a DC to DC up converter to 400 volts. The available fault current from an LG Chem battery is extremely small. 
We don't really need to worry about that, but some people do get worried about it. You're not connecting directly to the battery itself. You're connecting to a power converter, which is similar to an inverter and also has very low fault current available. Because yeah, it's got built-in protection, you know, listed, acceptable to the AHJ. That's going to be UL listed. If you want to find out all about that, you can just Google OSHA and then NRTL. That's nationally recognized testing laboratories, and you can see all the laboratories that can do the UL tests. So in ESS, by far, most of the ESS being certified today are certified by Intertech. So ETL would be their listing label. Intertech has probably eight or nine of the current products on the market. And then UL has, I believe they have Enphase. And they have SMA. They're only like three that... ETL. That's ETL. So yeah, I think most of them are ETL. So just be aware, (laughs) when we say something's listed, a lot of people put UL in front of that. And that's not true. Listed means that it's on a list and it's gone through a certification process. The key is that it's the correct certification process and that they're able and certified to do that testing. UL is just one lab. Yeah, but UL makes the test and then the other labs can do it. And there's two different entities within UL. So there's the standards writing entity, which has... Monopoly? They're sanctioned by the U.S. government to write various standards, various safety standards for various pieces of equipment. So solar is one of the things that they have essentially been given a monopoly by the federal government to write standards for. Other organizations can write standards for all kinds of different things if they're not under the monopolistic control of those types of requirements and then it's just whoever uses uh, the standard that becomes important the 9540 that's pretty much what we were saying all you need to look for is 9540 Mm -hmm. and that even goes back to the international residential code and then under that is 1973 so in order to be 9540 to get that 9540 listing it's going to have 1973 for the battery so like that power wall tesla makes both the battery and the inverter because it's all in the same box So they went and did both of those tests. But you're going to have your LG Kim is the 1973. And then you're going to have your SMA inverter or your storage inverter. They're going to go out there and test it for both. And I know you were saying before, Bill, too, that someday we might see LG Kim getting 9540 for just the DC part of the battery. They might. At this point, they probably could if they wanted to, but they don't really have to. So, and that's the important thing is that you're not going to see an LG Chem in 9540 battery at this point because that's not how they do it. It's under the Solar Edge or the SMA certification or Jinlong is another company that has a 9540 battery with LG Chem. Because then you would have to, like, you could power a DC house or something because yeah. 9540 has to... That's know, right. Be able to power a house or feed a DC grid. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So whole bunch of power walls, two triple stacks and two double stacks. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds kind of like in and out burger. If you've ever been to mm-hmm. the West coast and now with the 2018 IRC, this violates it, right? That's too much. The 2021 IRC. Oh, 2021. Yeah. The 2021 IRC, this would be too much in one area. And this is a standard installation practice of Tesla. And it will be interesting to see when 9540A stuff comes into play. 
whether if there's changes big ac load what changes to meet the code so that would be the 2021 the 2021 well one is that you got to be three feet away from any doors or windows entering the dwelling a window entering the dwelling now if that's a window going into the garage that would be acceptable but if that's going into the dwelling then that's closer than three feet this is a measuring tape deal you'd have to pull it out the other thing is that their 9540a testing we just talked about the test method would have to show that this back-to-back core and triple stack and double stack situation would be acceptable, which they have not finished their 9540A. They have done some large-scale testing, but they haven't finished their 9540A stuff. There's a few reasons for that. And then if you are going to do double stacks, let's say the double stacks are permissible, it'll tell you how close those double stacks or triple stacks could be to one another. Right now, I think This installation does comply with their current installation manufacturer's instructions, but that new 9540A results may require some additional spacings or something like that. Again, since it's not available, that's possible to know. I think also what there's a limit to like how many kilowatt hours you can have in one place. It's 80 kilowatt hours if it's mounted on the outside of the house or freestanding, but there's 80 kilowatt hour chunks. And you could do two different 80 kilowatt hour chunks in different locations. And I think that would be acceptable. So I think I could find a way to do that. The question is, is cooling an issue with the CLDSS like Tesla Powerwall? Well, I think that as you were to put, you know, a single Powerwall with airspace all around it probably is the coolest operation. Obviously, with the name Powerwall, it was intended to be sit on a wall and it's got a cooling fan in it. If you stack two of them together, they are separated and there's cooling in between. The I two believe units. they're liquid cooled, right? Is that probably liquid cooled? Yep. And the batteries in their cars are liquid cooled, of course. And so they're probably using a similar liquid cooling system. When anything's liquid cooled, it's always air cooled as well because you got to get the liquid cooled by the air. It's just that you have liquid usually an antifreeze solution. So it won't freeze circulating around the cells, trying to get the heat out of the cells and exhaust that heat through the air with a fan coil system. Yeah, and then the battery management system is going to have temperature sensors on the battery cells. So if it gets too hot, it'll just start derating itself and not let it go over a certain temperature. Yeah, and all these things have RJ45 connections to them, so they're all computerized and connected to... They're all going to be connected to the gateway. So in order for these things to run, they have to have a gateway. And I've got a gateway sitting behind me in my garage, which is just another white box. But that communications tells these power walls when the microgrid interconnect device is connected to the grid and when it's not connected to the grid. Critically important, as well as they communicate among all these power walls and share loads. So you're going to see each one of these power walls is going to accept and reject a similar amount of charge. So if we're in a charging situation, we're going to be all accepting about the same amount of charge. And when we're discharging, we're also going to be discharging about the same amount. of Pretty much any 9540 energy storage system, and for that matter, any energy storage battery too, if you put it in a sauna and turn the heat up, I mean, it's not going to burn up because it's going to have protection circuits in it. Yeah. And it'll just start derating itself, just like a solar inverter would do the same thing too. So there's little temperature sensors in there. It'll just start working at half power and things like that. Yeah. In fact, Enphase did that for fun. They had what they call an inverter barbecue, and they basically took their microinverter and ran full power into it from a solar panel, set it on a barbecue, and turned the heat up and just watched it. (laughs) Eventually, 
turn off from overheating and then just burn up went crispy inside it was all over with and there was no fire emanating from anything that would cause a fire i remember hearing like 10 years ago that they had one in boiling water or something you know yeah yeah it's a sealed unit so if you're using 706 storage batteries not associated with energy storage system shall comply with 480 i don't know just yep. don't use 480 anyway the maximum voltage shall be the rated energy storage system input and output voltage indicated on the nameplate or the system listing. So pretty much we're talking about coming out of the energy storage system. So we're looking at AC, right? Yeah. And this is where Article 706 still has some a ways to go because we have these energy storage subsystems like the LG Chem battery, and that has a certain voltage <clears throat> and capability to it. And that's interesting to know because that's going to be going into another piece of equipment. But at the end of the day, the energy storage system produces AC power. And that's really the number that's relevant, even though the folks that wrote this, I know for a fact, were thinking about the DC side. All right. Disconnecting means we have all these different ways to disconnect in 706.15a, B, C, and D. We're talking about the disconnecting means, how to remotely do it, the notifications and markings, and the partitions between components. And just so you know what a disconnecting means is, it's a device or group of devices or other means by which the conductors of a circuit can be disconnected from their source of supply. So there's a difference between just the disconnecting means and the system disconnecting means. Disconnecting means shall be provided for all ungranted conductors derived from an energy storage system and shall be permitted to be integral to listed equipment. And so the disconnecting means needs to be readily accessible inside of the energy storage system. And also this one kind of contradicts itself too. It says it needs to be inside of the energy storage system, but then it says if not practical to be within sight, then as close as possible and marked. So it's like shall be lockable in the open position. So that means you could lock it off in the off position. And so in a one and two family dwelling, the disconnecting means or remote disconnecting means shall be in a readily accessible location outside of the building I think it's sort of like they're trying to copy rapid shutdown. The 2014 NEC and earlier, rapid shutdown did cover the batteries, but then the 2017 NEC separated PV systems from energy storage systems, so we don't have rapid shutdown. And the problem that you could have with having to have the disconnect on the outside of the building is if your energy storage system was deep inside the building, you know, somebody might be trying to run big hot conductors through, you know, down a wall, through a building to the outdoors, to the outside of the building. And then they turn it off and there still would be like a hot wire going to that disconnect. That would be a potential problem. This is an area where the 2023 code is really going to have some, I think, fairly major changes and updates. The whole idea behind this one and two family dwelling thing is that primarily for firefighters. And again, like Sean said, it's kind of mimicking rapid shutdown. But the thing about rapid shutdown is rapid shutdown is in most cases an electronic process. It's not necessary to have load break rated anything in the process. And the 706 guys really never got that. They never understood the need for that. And so. They did have a remote control option. The way it's written is it still has to operate a switch of some kind that is load break. And that doesn't make a lot of sense and because it's much more expensive to do it that way. So we can turn inverters off. As we've pointed out many times, there's electronics involved in every single one of these systems. And we can turn that electronics off. We can cease to energize circuits, which we do all the time on inverter systems when we're connected to the utility grid. 
when there's an outage and things like that. That's been fully acceptable for well over 25 years. These guys are a little bit slow on the uptake. And so you're going to see options from folks like Enphase and Tesla and SolarEdge coming out that say, if you push this button, we shut off all of our electronics and that provides safety. And I would encourage jurisdictions in Hawaii to accept those as meeting this particular option or requirement for one and two family dwellings because the folks that wrote this really did not take into account these products and how they're being used and the electronics that are involved. And the 2023 code will have that in there explicitly, but it's the load break nature of these things that doesn't make a lot of sense in the requirements in the disconnecting means. Just something to take into account that you are going to see some really nice shutdown systems that are being developed for the 2023 code that will address the concerns of the fire service. Maybe initially you get the fire service involved so that they understand, and I would start approving those things sooner than later. When the controls to activate a disconnect means of energy storage system are used are not located with inside of the system, the location of the controls shall be field marked on the disconnecting means. That's typically if you've got it in a battery room or something like that, and you've got a requirement for the control to be outside, like it is in one and two family dwellings, then it's saying that at the disconnecting means inside the battery room, you're going to say that there's a remote activation somewhere else. The disconnecting means indicate whether it's off or on and permanently marked energy storage system disconnect. So for one thing, if it's one and two family dwellings, you only need to comply with one. So we just need to have the voltage of the energy storage system which is pretty much just going to be the AC voltage because that's the output of the energy storage system. You wouldn't put the DC voltage in any case, right? Unless you were just specifying the energy storage component. Now, this is the language from the 2020 code. This exception was added in the 2020 code, but I would support it as being a good thing. Now, that being said, I think a lot of the energy storage systems that are out there, like Tesla and others, actually have this label on them anyway, because it's been a requirement of the 2017 code. But the 2020 code basically said it's kind of silly to have two, three, and four on these small residential size systems. So again, this is something where a jurisdiction would have to say, I'm okay with waiving that, even though I'm on the 2017 code, because it was seen as that was an oversight of the original code panel for needing those additional items. Just like with the output of any interactive solar inverter or anything like that, you're not going to have huge fault currents because they're controlled by brains, by electronics inside of there. And so all these things have to do with like huge fault currents, arc flashes, and then the calculation. So notification and marking, this is that same sign that we've always seen for PV systems. So if electricity can come from both sides of a switch, you need to have that sign that says terminals on line and load side may be energized in the open position. Or equivalent. And I can't think of too many switches where that would be the case. But again, this is just saying where they can be energized from both sides. Yeah, because when you have an interactive inverter, you're never going to have it coming from, you know, like the utility side because it does anti-islanding perfect. So then this is another one about partitions between components. So we have circuits from the input or output of terminals of energy storage components. If they pass through a wall or a ceiling, then you need a readily accessible disconnecting means within sight of the component. And you can use fuse disconnect or circuit breakers permitted to be used. Connection to energy sources, we need disconnect 
If a disconnect has multiple sources, then it shall shut off all sources when in the off position. Interactive equipment needs to be listed as interactive. Loss of system power, you know, you need anti-aliding on interactive circuit. That's pretty much just the definition of interactive. Unbalanced interconnections shall comply with 705.45. Let's just talk about like putting a single phase inverter on a three phase service. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You have single phase loads and that would unbalance something. And in fact, if you placed things in the correct position, it would fix it. With solar inverters, it makes the voltage rise. So the voltage will go up because whichever way the power is coming from is the voltage will be higher where it's coming from than where it's going to. But it's a little trickier with energy storage because it goes both ways. So you could be having the power going into the battery. So it acts like a load. So you get voltage drop. If it's coming out of the battery, it will act like a source and it'll bring the voltage up a little bit. But unbalanced interconnections, in theory, I don't think that they should be banned, but why not have a three-phase inverter on a three-phase service, though? It makes it a little bit better that way. And I think actually in the future, it's possible that they could have three-phase inverters. I've actually even heard of them doing this in different countries where they would have a three-phase inverter that would balance out the different voltages on the different phases, even at night. But who's going to make one of those things unless there's some kind of financial incentive to make it worthwhile to do that? You're wasting money. If there was some incentive to do that. Connection to energy sources. If connected to other energy sources, then shall be in accordance with 705.12, 705.12 and 7.12. And if energy storage system can operate in standalone mode, then you need to follow Article 710 Standalone Systems, 690.10. And then we've talked about ventilation before. That's only for lead acid or NICAD. Nobody's using NICAD anymore. Things that would create hydrogen gas. A silly thing that they put in the NEC because it starts off, an energy storage system shall never exceed 100 volts between conductors or to ground. And then if you really think about it, every energy storage system you install exceeds 100 volts. And you probably couldn't even find one that's 9540 that doesn't exceed 100 volts because we're talking AC when it's the energy storage system. And that's because it'll be at least 120 volts or 240 volts pretty much. Unless during routine maintenance, life parts are not accessible, then 600 volts shall be acceptable. This came out of 690. So this is basically 690. The battery section was all about DC. It had nothing to do with AC. And so this is the evolution of Article 706 has made this Kind of silly in the first place, but even when it was in 690, it was really not something that we ever had to worry about because most of the systems that we were using that were in residential applications were actually sealed lead acid batteries. And so you could exceed 100 volts if you wanted to. Actually, the number was 60 volts or 48 volts nominal in Article 69. They basically bumped it up to 100 volts. But ultimately, if you have flooded lead-acid batteries, for instance, and you were above 48 volts, which was very rare, by the way, I've seen like 96-volt flooded lead-acid batteries, they're rare, then you would have to protect the live parts during routine maintenance. In all other cases, the enclosure itself was sufficient, and then there wasn't a requirement. Most of the batteries we had were 48 volts nominal or less and didn't fall under the... the end of the day, don't worry about this. It's kind of like the ventilation, move on. It's more of a problem of understanding what it's about and why it's there and knowing that it doesn't apply. That's the reality is it does not apply. Yeah, so this 100 volts never applies because unless always applies. <laughs> yep. I imagine that's another 2023 change. 
So spaces around electrical equipment, you just follow the rest of the NEC and spaces it between components. You know, you follow the manufacturer's instructions. And that's an important point. So as it stands right now in the current building code and the UL 9540 listings of those products and all, that's all acceptable. There may be things in the future we just pointed out that may change that. And UL 9540A, the 9540A test protocol may change some of those things in the future. So also just between components, a lot of times with residential, what you're looking at is a three foot depth, 30 inch width and six and a half foot height. And so directory for these power sources shall be in accordance with 11021. It just tells us what kind of labels to use. And then if we have utility and energy storage, then we need our plaques. And then with standalone, we also need a plaque accordance with 710. And pretty much what these directories are, if you have different sources, like different disconnects for a building from different energy storage systems, they're in different places. We've always had this with solar too. Then you need to have a plaque or directory telling you where the other source is. If you have two different places to turn something off, you don't want a firefighter coming out there and turning one thing off and thinking they had the whole building turned off. They want to make sure you know there's a different place to turn things off. Circuit requirements. So this is something that repeats itself all throughout the National Electrical Code, and it's wire sizing, and it's complicated, and it's kind of confusing. And another thing is we have chapter 12 of our book, PV in the NEC, and that really gets into wire sizing. And actually, we even have an example there that shows you how you can have a conductor with a lower ampacity than overcurrent protection device and it being okay because the reason for that is you round up the conductor to the next common overcurrent protection device ampacity. It's kind of confusing, but the reason that they do that is just because that our wires are the tables, 31016, for example, is overly conservative. And so that's kind of why we can do that. And most people don't do wire sizing right, but they always use a wire that's bigger than required instead of like people are usually surprised. You know, if you follow the NEC, you could use a wire a lot smaller than you would think. Nameplate. Oftentimes, the energy stores will charge and discharge through the same conductors. So you're going to use whatever is the higher current. You know, if you're discharging and charging, sometimes the current would be different. And also another thing is you use your continuous current, not your surge currents. So sometimes your surge currents will be double of your continuous current, but the surge currents are for such a short time, they don't have enough time to heat up the wires. And then inverter input circuit current. So just imagine this, this is going from a battery to an inverter. And with all of our systems that we're talking about that are 9540, this is all programmed in there. So it's all already set. You know, it's not like you're going to ever be able to change that with your system. But this is something that's always been in Article 482 and people have been using for their systems. If you're going from a battery to an inverter, as the battery gets lower, the current gets higher for the same amount of power. So you always would size your wire based on the lowest voltage, which would be the highest current. So it's kind of, you know, a tricky question if you're like trying to trick somebody. It's like, how do you size that wire based on the lowest voltage or the highest voltage? And it's the lowest voltage because that's the highest current. Now we're going to divert into a different subject, which is diversion loads. And so what a diversion load is, is let's say that somebody's battery is fully charged. They haven't been home for a week. They don't need to send anything to the grid. Everything's turned off in the house. They got all this extra power. What do they do with it? A lot of people will just not do anything and their array would just not put out much power. 
But some people, they'll have a diversion load. And in the older times, sometimes people would have diversion loads because they would be trickle charging their batteries. And this would just be a heating element that would be a diversion load. People were doing that with wind turbines and things like that. Other diversion loads would be electric heating element. Your hot water tank would be a really good diversion load. So that's like storing your energy as thermal. And then another good diversion load would be a water pump. If you like were on a piece of property, a lot of times it's an off-grid system. They'd have a water pump for diversion load. There's a lot of rules about these diversion loads. Sometimes they call them dump loads. The C40 was the most common charge controller in the world for, oh, about four or five years from the late 90s to the early 2000s. Literally thousands of those things out there, but they were lighting controllers you could use them as. They were obviously doing solar charge control, but not doing it as a max PowerPoint tracker. So there were a lot of losses in that. And one of the options was instead of wasting the power in the pulse width modulation process is to divert the power to any of one of those loads that Sean just mentioned. What we're looking at right now with energy storage to kind of bring it full circle is that an energy storage system is essentially a diversion load for a PV system. So when the utility said, we're not going to accept power back on our grid, zero net export, then the energy storage became a viable diversion load. And so now you're diverting power into a battery because you want to be able to use whatever you want when you want to. And so, you know, storing hot water doesn't always work, especially in Hawaii, because so many people have solar hot water in Hawaii. So we don't want to make hot water because we're already making hot water with our solar thermal. We want to store that energy in a battery so we can use it at night for our air conditioning or for lighting or refrigeration or whatever we need it for. Yeah, I guess you could say Bill's swimming pool is a diversion load. His swimming pool with electricity. Right now. He's got a whole lot of solar. How many kilowatts do you have? Oh, about 35. So just for one house. Yep. So pulse width modulation as to maximum PowerPoint tracking, it's just like taking a light switch and flicking it off and on really quick to like to dim the lights. That's how you would slow down your charge with pulse width modulation. And now we have technology that's kind of beyond that. So when Bill was saying that the energy storage system is like a diversion load, he was talking more theory because you don't have to follow these rules. And so pretty much what we're saying is we need to oversize. If we're going to have a diversion load, we need to oversize it. And you're probably not seeing a lot of these diversion loads where you are, but it kind of would make sense. These rules for diversion loads came from Article 690. So we wrote Mm -hmm. these a long time ago. We wrote these when the C40 charge controller was the most common charge controller out there. (laughs) And the idea was that the C40 was actually a backup charge controller to the main charge control, which was diverting power to the utility or to a diversion load. And the concern was that if you were relying on a diversion load, we'd seen this happen in the field, and the diversion load were to break on you, then you could actually blow up your lead-acid batteries at the time. And so we put some rules in place that just had a supplementary charge controller to kick in. And in fact, those C40 charge controllers, if they were set properly, would never operate unless there was a utility outage or unless the diversion load failed. Yeah, so pretty much what we're saying is the diversion load needs to be the right voltage, at least be able to support them the voltage. And then the power and the current actually has to be oversized by 150% and also the overcurrent protection with these diversion loads. Yeah, it could be AC or DC. Where the diversion controllers really got their start was with wind turbines, 
where wind turbines would fully charge a battery and then they would just have all this excess energy and they had to do something with it. And so they put it in a big resistor to keep the wind turbine from running away. That's what they was trying to do. Whereas solar, we can operate it at a different power point. So a pulse width modulator can basically just move the operating point on the solar to a point that's inefficient from the solar panel's point of view. And so originally all about DC, but it absolutely could be an AC appliance that we turn on with a relay, right? We could have an AC relay that turns on and off a window air conditioner unit, for instance. You know, you're always doing some kind of dehumidifying. So a dehumidifier air conditioner would be a great diversion load that you would give you extra dehumidification during times when you had excess solar. Maybe you wouldn't want to call it a diversion load if you're doing something like that for a dehumidifier because then you wouldn't want to have to oversize it by 150%. Yes, it's just an extra load that you would turn on and off. And there are a lot of software out there that can do those kinds of things just as part of a normal operation and are not integral to the energy storage system. And I think the point that Sean's making, which is a very good point, is this whole discussion about diversionary loads is when it's part of an energy storage system and a required part of the energy storage system, then you'd have to have these meet these requirements. The nice thing about our AC ESS energy storage systems that are out there, we can do all kinds of control using AC type controllers and relay systems and things like that that can turn things on and off our load control, that even if we didn't turn them on and off, it wouldn't cause the energy storage system to have any problems. We're trying to get the most out of our solar panels. That's what we're really trying to do at the end of the day. If we're trying to get the most out of our solar panels, we might elect to turn things on on a day where we have excess solar and our batteries have reached full capacity. I almost think that this might be a little bit outdated, this oversizing yeah. things by 150%. Well, it's all about PV. But because also our energy storage systems, they're 9540 these days, and I don't, just don't think this 150%. Absolutely. So let's get rid of it. 2023. Yep. If your diversion load is the grid, so if you have grid-tied battery backup, once your batteries are charged, then you send it to the grid with the PV system, then you don't need to follow all these rules. But yeah, I think there's a lot of good relays for, that you could use for turn on heating your pool and all that stuff would be a great idea. So we got charge controllers and DC to DC converters that increase or decrease the current and voltage. The opacity of the conductor shall be based on the maximum rated continuous current. We base the wire size on the continuous current. It's not going to be any surge current. Some people get mixed up too because they'll take that there's a required ampacity for continuous current for something that goes for three hours or more and they multiply times 1.25. This continuous current, this is just like the continuous current that comes out of the device, the inverter or the battery or whatever. But there's also the required ampacity for continuous current that some people call continuous current and they're doing wire sizing. And that's 125% of this. So there's difference between continuous current and required opacity for continuous current. Yeah, in most cases, you know, residential UL9540 style systems, the fact that this conductor sizing and everything like that is going to be pretty much set with the installation instructions and stuff like that. This might become more of an issue with larger systems and all, but be aware that your energy storage system is going to tell you what the maximum currents of the devices are. And, uh, you know, it might be 
24 amps or something like that. And then you'll have a 30 amp wire that goes connected to that. And everybody knows that a 30 amp wire is 10 gauge conductors. And so a lot of this stuff is super simple on a residential level, very, very straightforward. And when we get into larger utility scale or say commercial industrials type applications, it might get a little stickier, but we're typically going to have engineers involved in those projects and all the rest. So I think there's a lot of detail that we're talking about here that's in the code, but at the end of the day, the installation instructions of these residential 9540 units are pretty straightforward and the wire sizing tends to be pretty easy. Wow, wasn't that fun? Thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more, go to solarshawn.com. That's solar, S-E-A-N.com. If you want to find out about Bill Brooks, his website is brooksolar.com with one S in between the Brooks and the Solar. Just one S there. And you got Sean's classes, which feature Bill Brooks many times over, over at heatspring.com forward slash Sean. Or you can just connect to that link through solarshawn.com. 